So uh, it took me a while or a minute to go, okay, so where do we go with the, with the standalone? We don't do a lot of uh, standalone messages. Typically, we're usually in a series. I like the guidance of a series because you know where, where you're going next. If you have that, typically you can't be accused of, uh, by anyone of going, you said that just because you're trying to get me. No, Jesus said it because it was the next part in what we were, we were talking about, we can say. So, uh, but this morning, we're going to go to, uh, we're gonna go to Philippians uh, chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul is, is going to be, be writing uh, is one of his letters uh, to the churches. This is the, to the church at, at Philippi. And he's going to talk about uh, his, his ministry. And so he does what he typically does. He greets people, says what's up. He gives thanksgiving and prayer. And then he starts to talk about the, the, the gospel advancing and what the gospel or the, the good news about Jesus, what the effects uh, of that is. And then he says what... Um, what I want us to deal with this morning, and it's a little bit of the end of, of verse 18. Uh, just as a, as a note that I'm sure you all know, the verse numbers in Scripture are not inspired. Um, I'm not entirely 100% sure how they got there, but sometimes they get in the wrong place and they break sentences in half. And so verse 18 of Philippians is one of those examples uh, where where the yes and I rejoice doesn't belong with verse 18. And so we're actually going to start with the yes and I rejoice, even though that's part of 18. So it, it says this. It says, yes, and I rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, we have some of 22, but I think we're going we're gonna to actually stop there at 21. For me to live is Jesus Christ, and to die is gain. That's going to be our, our, central, our, our central piece this morning. Here's, here's the story with, with Paul, right? You remember, Paul is, is a... Uh, is a borderline zealot for knocking out or destroying the, the Christian faith. He, he's, he's all about it. He is, um, he's, if you think in, in, in modern terms, uh, he's like a mobster, and Christianity for him was a, was a, rival, was a rival mob or a rival gang. Or in an urban sense, he's, he's one form of gangster, and Christianity was another form of, uh, of gangster. And I, I say it like that because... Paul, when his name used to be Saul, was, was committed to, to, uh, to his, his faith, which was, was Judaism, but he was also convinced that these people who kept talking about this, this Jesus were just wrong. He was convinced that they were so wrong and so angry about it that, that he, he set a, about this, this idea that he was going to see them destroyed. He was going to see them wiped out. He was going to see them obliterated. And so he became very, very involved in the persecuting of Christians. He became very involved in trying to wipe out the, the Christians. In fact, he's so committed uh, to that, that that he's going around and he's at the, the, the persecution, the, um, 
the, the, the killing of other believers. It so happens that Paul, one day, is on his way to, 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 uh, to a city, and he's on the way. The reason he's going to the city is because he plans to be involved in more persecution of, of Christians. He wants to see these Christians wiped out because of all their talk about this Jesus guy. And so Paul's on his, uh, on his trusty steed. He's riding, uh, he's riding to the next place, and God shows up. But God shows up in the person of Jesus and it knocks Paul on his behind onto the ground. And God says to him again in the voice of Jesus, said, Paul, or Saul in this case, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who, Lord? And he says, why do you persecute me? And so he has this encounter where Jesus shows up on the scene, knocks him on, on his hind end and says, Saul, you used to be a persecutor of me and of my people, but now you work for me, and you'll do what I say. And so essentially that's the conversion of, of, of Saul. Uh, it's how, how, we get our, uh, 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 how we get Paul when we talk about Paul. The, the conversion happens when God knocks him on his behind, tells him, you work for me. He sends him off for some, some study. He sends him off for a time of training, and this, this radical persecutor of, of Christians becomes the greatest missionary we know from, from Scripture. He writes a good portion under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is the, the human channel of a good portion of the New Testament. He becomes a radical Jesus follower. The thing is, is when you go from being one, uh, you go from being a persecutor of Christians to being the most outspoken of, of Christians, things don't always go well for you. And so the same people who had wanted to kill Christians, the same people who had wanted to wipe out uh, this new, what they viewed as this new faith, they weren't seeing Christ as the messianic fulfillment uh, of the, the Jewish faith. They weren't seeing Christ as the, as the fulfillment of every word of the Old Testament. They weren't seeing uh, Christ as the fulfillment of, of, of everything that's spoken. Every feast, every ceremony, every shadow had been fulfilled in Jesus, but they weren't seeing it like that. They viewed this Jesus as a, as a new dude, as a... As a um, essentially a heretic and a false messiah who was trying to distort their, their, their faith. And so, so when, when you go from being one of those guys to actually following this Jesus, the same dudes you used to hang out with are going to have some issues with you, that same group of people. So Paul becomes a Jesus follower, but the persecution didn't stop with Paul. Paul, it just got transferred to Paul. And so Paul, though he is a, uh, when he becomes a Jesus follower, Contra some of what you might see on TV or what you might hear on a religious TV broadcast, when Paul becomes a, a Jesus follower, it is not all in the human sense, just blessing after blessing after blessing. And it does not make everything perfect. In fact, persecution continues and is stepped up in his life. And so Paul is regularly being persecuted and he is regularly suffering for the cause of, of, of the gospel. In fact, the letters that Paul writes... Uh, many of them are written from prison where he is for testifying to the good news of who Jesus is, where he is for refusing to stop talking about Jesus. And so he is used to this concept of, of, of suffering. And so this is the context in which this is written. Paul is in, uh, is in suffering. He is a, a missionary in, in, in chains. And so this is how, uh, uh, how he... 
he writes to them. So that's kind of, so for I know that through your prayers, or yes, and I will rejoice. We're going to come back to that rejoicing, but hold that in your mind. For I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is very committed to what he has to say and what he is called to say. And so Paul, now that he is a follower of Jesus, is like, I'm going to talk about Jesus, and it's my prayer. Pray for me that Christ will be honored whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead. And that's closer to where we want to get to. I want to point out to you the level of commitment that Paul has, his commitment to Jesus, his prayer, most of us, most of us do not use these kinds of terms in, in regard to our own death. For instance, he says eager expectation. He says hope. We do not use those terms when usually referring to our death, but he says it's my eager expectation, it's my hope. And then he doesn't go on to say, usually if we were saying this, if we thought it felt as though we were under threat of death, if we thought maybe death was coming soon, uh, you, could, you could say in the term whether you thought through sickness your death was, was near, or in Paul's case, you thought you were going to be killed for communicating uh, the truth about Jesus. Either way, most of us would say, it is my eager expectation and hope that Jesus will rescue me from this death. That's how most of us would pray. Uh, uh, we have, most of us, an ingrained and built-in fear uh, of death. And it's probably the, the greatest fear. If you think about all fears and you categorize them, they all come back, uh, back to, to death. Usually, most fears come back. You might be afraid of, of spiders, but you're probably afraid of spiders because you believe somehow the spider is going to bite you and, and, and kill you, um, which uh, is probably not going to happen here in Michigan. It's one of the wonderful things about Michigan is that we don't have many things that can bite you and, and kill you. And yeah, as someone who's afraid of most things, uh, I, find <laughs> I find that does nothing to assuage my, my fear. I still don't like, like spiders. I can live with those little daddy long leg ones, which I think technically aren't even spiders because I can smash them, but I still don't like them right? But most fears usually link back to some sort of fear of death. If you're afraid of, of spiders, if you're afraid of snakes, um, I think I'm appropriately afraid of, of, of snakes. Um, I will say this, that Haley and I were in the, in the Philippines once, and we were on an island called Maspate, and Maspate, it's one of the places that the king cobra lives. In fact, there's more poisonous uh, breeds or more poisonous, uh, I wanted to say brands, but I guess it's breeds. There's more poisonous uh, uh, breeds of snakes in the Philippines than any place else in the world, uh, which is information I found out after my like uh, seventh trip there. So I'm glad I found it out late in the game. But uh, I, I read after we had been there that, that on Masbate in this island where we were, the king cobra, which is one of the, is, I think the deadliest snake in the world, that the king cobra inhabits that area. Which is information, again, I'm glad I found out afterwards because Haley and I discovered these little chickens that were running around outside a village and we were chasing them through this open field, right? And I'm not an expert in, um, 
in snake habitat and where snakes live and what snakes do. But I'm assuming that, a, that an open field might be a place that snakes might be. And so when I think back on that story, I get fear after the fact. I like breathe a little hard. I'm like, oh my goodness, we were chasing stuff through an, through an open field. The point is, I'm afraid of things and you're afraid of things because we're afraid that they're going to kill us, usually, right? Whether that is logical or not, um, longtime crosswinders will know of my semi-famous fear of the dark. I don't like a lot of things, right? I'll be honest with you. Like, like I do urban ministry, and part of the way I do urban ministry because there's like there's streetlights every place, right? We got smitten, we got streetlights. You got smitten, you don't got snakes. You got streetlights, you don't got dark, right? And so I'm not afraid of things that happen in the hood. I'm afraid of things that happen uh, in, in, in places like that. But I, I bring all of that up to say this, is that you're probably afraid of something, but if you track your fear, it ultimately comes back to this, is that we have this, this, this fear related to our mortality. We are aware that the breath we breathe, that our inhaling and exhaling, and that the beating of our heart and all that courses through our veins, one day will stop. The breath will stop, the heart will stop beating, and the blood will stop flowing. We are aware that one day this is going to happen, and that's what causes fear in us, so that when, if we, most of us, were praying, if most of us are, are, are talking to, to Jesus or talking about our prayers, and we had a fear of impending death, we would say, yes, and it is my eager expectation, even if we think we're having faith, it is my eager expectation and hope that Jesus will rescue me from this impending death. But Paul does not say that. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that the full courage, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, he could mean with full courage, courage to face death, but I don't even think he means that. I think what he means is as death is impending, that he might have the full courage to continue to communicate about Jesus Christ as he dies. So what I'm saying is that the Apostle Paul seems to be a little different than most of us as it comes to the issue of death. As it comes to this issue, his passion, when he thinks about mortality, he thinks about that moment when his breath stops, his first thought is, let Christ be glorified. Let Jesus be proclaimed. Let Jesus be known. Let him be honored whether by life or by death. And then he says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now this is not, this is not the fatalism of, of some cult that, that teaches, you know, get together, drink the Kool-Aid. Paul is not looking to die at the moment. In fact, he'll, he'll say that later on. He's like, I, I, I'm torn, but I need to continue to, 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 to live for now because I'm passionate about sharing the gospel in these places. It's not, it's not the fatalism to drink the Kool-Aid of a cult. He's just saying, for me to live is Jesus Christ, but to die is to be a, to die is gain. So, how does he say that and why can he say that? Most of us would not say that. Some of us would not even verbalize that for fear that we would accidentally say something and it would somehow come true, which is superstition. But most of us would be afraid of thinking about or mentioning the reality of death or our own mortality, our own death. But Paul speaks openly and says, for me to live, it's all about Jesus. But to die would be a gain. He says that, the reason he, he can say that, and the reason he says that is, is this, is that his connection to, his love for, 
Jesus is so powerful, it's, it's so great in him, it's so complete that he, he, has, he has looked at what life holds and he has looked at what Jesus is and he's decided that Jesus is greater than everything else. And so when we look at things like mortality and when we look at things like like, like life, and we look at things like, like, like death, the reason, one of the reasons our fear of death is so great must be because our love or our appreciation, our worship of Jesus is simply not strong enough. It's not where it needs to be. And that is not a, um, I, I think, I believe that to be a universal and common critique. In other words, I know that my love for Christ is not as it should be. For me to say to you, to come to you honestly and say it with the depth of, of what I assume Paul said it with, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain is, is at this point borderline impossible for me to say. And it is not just, by the way, my fear of death that says that it's all the things related to it. The reality is, is that in Paul's life, in the life of Paul, he has already experienced all kinds of things. He's been kind of all through all kinds of persecution, all kinds of loss. And what he's discovered is that as he loses all kinds of things, Jesus continues to be enough. I've heard, seen several quotes that go something like this. You'll never know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. And I think that, the, that that's kind of where Paul is, and maybe not in the, in the literal sense, but in his, his growth and his connection to Jesus, he's gotten so deep with Jesus that he realizes that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is greater. Right? I will be honest with you, at this point, most of my fear about death doesn't even relate to, to my own death um, which means if my death could be quick and painless, that's not my fear. My, my fear often is that my death would be horrific and painful, and I'm opposed to that. But quick and painless doesn't bother me. Here's what bothers me about death is I have four children, and I live with this gripping fear that my children might grow up without me, and how would they turn out, and what would happen, and who would take care of them. We kind of live with those gripping fears, which are appropriate and, and good, but, but here's, here's the thing about about all of that is that Paul, in his life, even through all of everything, he has this understanding that every fear and every concern that, that a personal, that, or that, he understands that his deep connection to Jesus and that the person of Jesus overcomes all of those, that they're, they're greater even than those, those things. And so I, what I want us to, to connect to is this idea, is that in all of our lives, your life, my life, there are bad things, which is easy for us to look at and identify, there's a bad thing. I need to get rid of that, or, or, or uh, I need to get that out of my life so that I can grow in Jesus, right? It is, if, if, uh, if you had, you know, a, a $1,000 a day cocaine habit, 
and you were like, well, I have this cocaine habit, and I'm spending $1,000 a day, and if you go to this church and you're spending $1,000 a day, you're obviously stealing as well, right? Because I don't know where you're getting 1000 a day. But you have $1,000 a day cocaine habit that you're supporting, obviously, through, through stealing, and it's affecting your family, affecting your life, and you're like, but I want to grow in Jesus. It is easy to identify your $1,000 a day cocaine habit as a problem and go, if I'm going to grow in Jesus, I need to get rid of my cocaine habit, right? Easy. If you're doing all kinds of things, like we just mentioned robbery, like if you're one of those dudes who routinely shows up on the news because he robbed a bank, that happens in this neighborhood a lot. They're like, a bank was robbed today. So-and-so took off on foot. And what you never hear about is, apparently, you can go in and rob a bank to a certain extent and not really get caught. That's, my, that's, my, uh, that's not a suggestion. That's analysis, right? I'm not going, hey, here's a... Here's a good employment opportunity. Here's an idea. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the banks around here get, get robbed a lot. If you're one of those people who's like, do you recognize, right? And we turn on the TV and we're like, oh my goodness, that's Bobby from church. Call him in, right? If we recognize, it would probably be easier for you, easy for you if you got arrested. I come up to, to the, the jail. I meet with you at the jail. You're like, I want to grow in Jesus. If I said to you, you need to stop robbing banks, you would probably agree with me. Those are easy to identify. You have in your life ongoing sins that are easy for you to identify as problems in your growth into the person of Jesus, right? There are things that you realize. And here's, what, here's by the way, what sin is. Sin is the opposite of this verse. When Paul says, for me to live is Jesus Christ and to die is gain, he says that because Christ is his number one value. Christ is the thing he puts the number one worth in. He values Jesus more than anything else. Sin is when we value anything more than we value Jesus. That's sin. So it's easy to recognize things like cocaine habits and bank robbing and, and, um, and kicking your dog or swearing at your, your children, or, or these sorts of things, it is easy to recognize them as wrong and a problem. We recognize them as sin, but what I said was, sin is anything we give more value to than Jesus, which means that there are a lot more things that are sin that are harder to recognize. I will be honest with you, as a father of four who adores my children, there are times when I have to go up and when I'm praying over them at night, one of the things I have to confess is that I have made them idols in my life. That's harder to recognize. When your idolatry is based in something good, when your idolatry is based in something that God has called me to be a father. God has called me to love my children. God has called me to care for them, to protect them, to crusade for them, to be all about them. But it is harder to recognize that at times, all of those things go beyond doing those things because God has called me to, to meeting my own needs through that. Because what happens, by the way, if your love of your children begins to supersede your love of your Christ, what you probably have is called codependence. What you definitely have is idolatry. And just as, a, as an extra note, which I've realized in myself, it is probably not simply about your love of your children. It is about the fulfillment of your own needs and your own pleasures through something other than the person of Jesus Christ. 
right? And so what I want you, what we're going to get to and what we're going to understand is that I would never call you to a place where I do not think that Christ calls us to a place of dourness. I do not think that Jesus calls us to a place of, of, of lack of happiness. I think he calls us to joy and to pleasure. And what I'm suggesting to you is that when you choose things other than Jesus to be in the place of Jesus, you enter into sin and you cut yourself off from your own pleasure and your own joy. I know this because Psalm 116.11 says this of, of God. In my presence is fullness of joy, pleasures evermore. See, you were designed for pleasure. You were designed for joy. Sin keeps you from those things. And it is sin that keeps us fearful. It is sin that keeps us from being able to say, for me to live is Jesus Christ and to die is gain. But what we recognize as sin is often... Uh, um, much more subtle, but ultimately much more insidious than, than cocaine habits and bank robbery. See, there are days I have to go up, lay my hands on my children, and confess to the Lord God that I idolize them, and he needs to be number one. Because love for my children that is based in sin is not profitable to me, and it could be deadly for my children. And that's just a secondary point. Right? It's harder to recognize if you've got a good job. My job's in, in ministry, but if you've got a good job, here's one of the things I believe about all jobs is that there's a reason you were given a job, and it's to bring glory to the Lord God. It's to bring glory to Christ. It's, it's all of those things. But if you've got a, a good job, and you're, you're working at your job, and you're providing for your family, and you're doing a good job, it is sometimes harder to recognize that your job could be sin. Well, how could that be? I'm doing what I'm supposed to. Right? In, we live in an urban community. We live in an urban context. A lot of times people don't have jobs. People aren't working jobs. We just talked about parenting. Parenting is rough in urban communities sometimes, especially from a fathering standpoint. And so you go, well, how can fathering be a sin? Well, I just told you, and I'm going to tell you uh, another way. Uh, the, the, with this, that sometimes our pursuit of effective um, Working. Working is good. You were called to work. You were made to work. I know this because there was work before there was the fall. Work is not a result of sin coming into the world. God made it and blessed it. It was good. Man was made to work. You were designed for this. Men especially. It, uh, I, I often say, you show me a man who is depressed, I will most of the time show you a man who is not working or has some sort of work deficit. Typically, not always, but I see that a lot. So I believe that. But do you know that sometimes our work, our jobs can become a barrier to our, our relationship with Christ or they can become bigger than our relationship with, with Jesus. And so just as sometimes we need to confess our, our idolatry of loving our children more than Christ, putting our children before Christ, sometimes we need to confess our idolatry of putting our work before Christ, our job before Christ. There are those, those sorts of things. It can be relationships. You can have a good relationship and a bad relationship. Either way, if you are in a bad relationship, it is probably easy to see that you should not be in that relationship, and the relationship is, is, is sinful. You should be out of it. Here's Here's one. You could be dating someone who is a Christ follower, but they're not following Christ, and they don't encourage you to follow Christ. You should not be dating that person if they're not encouraging you to follow, encouraging you to follow Christ. You should break up with them. That's basic, right? Uh, if The same token, if you're dating someone who does not know Jesus, 
you should break up with him. That's basic. That's scripture. If you're unwilling to do either of those things, right? This person's not leading me to be more like Jesus. In fact, they're leading me away from Jesus. You say, but I won't break up with them. What you have said is that that person is your God. And what it says here, for me to live as Jesus Christ and to die, it will never be true in you. It can't be true. Because for you to live is that relationship. And thus, you're cutting yourself off from the gain of being with Jesus when you die. Yeah, you'll be with Jesus when you die, but you're cutting yourself off from the pleasures and the joy if you're, if you're in Christ. And so that can be true whether the person you're with is a believer, but if they're not a believer, Scripture is, is clear that, that we should not be in those relationships. And sometimes we think, well, I'm not married to them, and this is just dating, and this is just this. Oh, man, we lie to ourselves to excuse our idolatry so greatly. And then we wonder, why is this verse not true? Because you have chosen something over Jesus. And so I'm not going to continue to, 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 to inundate you with examples. I'll let you make your own examples for your own life. But I want you to hear just one more. I'll say this. Even in a relationship where both partners are following Jesus, if those relationships, because, if that relationship uh, uh, starts to function in a way where you start to put the person in the relationship above the person of Jesus, even in a good relationship, it can become destructive. And you're destroying your relationship with Jesus, but you're also destroying your relationship with that other person in, the, in, the, in a very ironic way because you have become so attached to that relationship. You want it so bad, and it's got to happen. And you're so attached to that relationship that in your refusal to follow Jesus, you're destroying that relationship. And so here's, here's the point. What I want us to get to before I move on from, from this part is this, is that we need to look into our lives and be honest with ourselves. Right? Here's the thing I've, I've realized in life is that um, some days, some days, uh, I don't walk in the Spirit as I should, and I don't let the Spirit transform me. So it's, like, it's hard for me to, 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 to cause spiritual growth in myself, which is, as a parenthesis, I don't cause spiritual growth in myself. Jesus causes spiritual growth in me. But in a human sense, it's hard for me to grow as I should in the faith. And so I don't have the power, especially through just talking to you, to make you grow in Jesus. I can't do that. But what I do want to do is at least put this in your head, that you need to live your life in such a way that if you're going to make decisions that things are bigger than Jesus, you are at least honest about it. So if I'm going to choose to make my children bigger than Jesus, I need to be honest with it. I need to be able to look at them and say to my children, Jeremiah, Haley, Shane, Noah, I worship you. You are bigger than Jesus to me. Let me pray to you. I want you to be honest about that. If, if, you're, if whatever's going on at your job and your, your employment, if your job has become bigger then Jesus, what I want you to do is go to your boss and tell them, you need to know this job is so important to me. It's more important than Jesus. It is my God. I do worship it. So I just want you to know. But I want you to be honest. You need to look in the mirror and say, if, the, if it's the job, you need to say, hey, job, I worship you. You're my God now. Pray to that. Worship that. But be honest about it. If it's any relationship, 
whether that's, a, that's an appropriate relationship or an inappropriate relationship. If you have gotten out of whack, right? Let's say you're in a, in a married relationship, but there's a, there's, a, there's a codependence that's not based in, in Jesus. You need to look at the other person and say, I just want you to know that the comfort and codependence of this relationship is Jesus to me. It's bigger than God, and I worship it. And then I want you to start to live your life based around that. Well, you already are. But I want you to be honest about the fact of what religion you're practicing, what faith you're practicing. If you're in a relationship with a person who knows Jesus but is not leading you towards Jesus, you need to go to that person and say, you know what, I appreciate you not leading me towards Jesus and I appreciate it so much that I've decided to worship you. You're my God. I want you to say that to them. If you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus, this is a simple one. They don't know Jesus. They're not following him anyways. Maybe they'll appreciate it. But go to them and say, you know what, you're my God. I worship you. You're Jesus to me now. But I want you to hear me. And I'm not, I'm not trying to hurt feelings. I'm not going after anyone. I'm, I'm pre- I never, it's my commitment every year. I don't preach messages that don't speak to me. But I have chosen a lot of stupid gods in my life, right? Predominantly the one that looks at me in the mirror every morning. But the thing about, about the false god that looks at me in the mirror every morning is he takes many forms, Right? So in my life, the, the God in the mirror has taken the form of children. He's taken the form of sports. He's taken the, the form of, this is an interesting one, he's taken the form of vocational ministry, right? Uh, he, he's taken the form of food, right? How crazy is it to worship? There's a, there's a passage in, in the Bible that says the, the, their God is their stomach, and we mock that. <laughs> Who would make their God their stomach? Well, me, right? Because here's the reality is that I wake up each morning knowing that I have a problem with gluttony, knowing that I have a problem with lack of of, of self-control, knowing that I don't eat right, knowing that I'm not taking care of the body given to me by God, and I make excuses for for that. And even if I'm trying to follow Jesus, there are days when a donut shows up on the scene and I decide to worship the donut. And I've got to tell you, that is foolishness. And I say that... I say that as someone who's, who, if we were using alcohol terms, is like two weeks sober in, in, a, in a food detox. But how stupid is it that I have decided that a donut is greater than Jesus in my life? It is stupid. And so I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but I'm telling you that there is a foolish God in your life. And if you cannot testify openly that for you to live is Jesus Christ and to die is gain, or you don't feel like you're moving towards it, it is because you have chosen a different God than Jesus. And the issue in your life and the issue in my life is to ferret out those false gods and kill them. That's what we need to do. Because I want to be a person who testifies that for me to live is Jesus Christ and to die is gain. I want to be a person whose love for Jesus is greater than my fear. Yes, we fear, fear death, but the good news says perfect love drives out fear. Jesus' love is perfect. Yes, it's going to be day by day. Yes, we're going to have to grow into it. But if you are not progressing to the point where you can say, yes, Jesus is greater than everything else. To die is gain. To be with Jesus is enough. Then you have an idolatry problem. And I have an idolatry problem. And we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we are worshiping? Because it's not Jesus. You say it's impossible. No one's like that. That's the Apostle Paul. He lived like that. Let's, let's tell a story, one of my favorite stories that you've been around long enough, you've no doubt heard me tell. But one of my heroes is a dude named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a, was, a, um, was a Wheaton student when he felt called to ministry. He felt called deeply to ministry in, such, in, in a way that, that, that just, just overtook him. And he and his buddies decided that they wanted to go someplace and, and do, do kind of... Um, 
exciting ministry as, as young guys will, will try and do. And so uh, as they were graduating from, from Moody, uh, not Moody, I'm sorry, from Wheaton, as they were being called to ministry, he and a group of, of, of guys decided they were, they were going to minister to a group of, of, um, of, of natives in Ecuador. This group of natives in Ecuador had been, not been reached for, for Jesus. In fact, they had not had contact with the outside world uh, at, at, any, at any recent point. They didn't have contact with the outside world. They were tribal. They were cannibalistic, right? Uh, other people have written about this, this same, same group, and they, they talk about the, the shrunken heads. They would kill people in other tribes, and then they would shrink their heads as, as trophies through some sort of uh, through some sort of some sort of process, but Jim Elliot and his friends, uh, and, uh, his friend Nate Saint and others felt called to this group, and so they said, "We're going to make contact with this group of of Indians in Ecuador." Now, I want to take a step back and say this: my favorite thing about Jim Elliot, I encountered Jim Elliot even before the story. I encountered him through this quote, where he said, "He is no fool if he should choose to give up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose." Now, Jim Elliott said that, and it's always interesting. People say things, right? Like, if you talk for a living, if you write things down for a living, sometimes you get, like, wrapped up in your own stuff, right? Like, like a lot of people just tweet. But some of us who do this too much, right? We talk for a living, we're like, i got to have the best tweet. It's going to be powerful. And so sometimes you have to ask, does a person's tweet or does a person's quote match up with their life, right? So here's what I like about Jim Elliott. So Jim Elliott said, he is no fool if he should choose to give up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. He said that before he went as a missionary to Ecuador. In Ecuador, they need to make contact with this group of, uh, of, 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 of natives. The way they choose to make contact is they take an airplane. And they put a long rope on the airplane, and in the bucket, uh, at the, they put a bucket at the bottom of that. And they start to put gifts into it, and they have a special flying maneuver where they fly in circles. And if you fly perfectly in a circle in, a, in this airplane, it'll keep the bucket right in the middle of where they wanted it. So they took the bucket, they lowered it down to, to the native people, and they flew in a circle. So the bucket was right in front of them. In the bucket was gifts. I think at one point they gave them a machete. They gave them a, a, a parrot. They gave them these different gifts, but they continued to make contact like this. So they felt like they were starting to make contact and, and, and to start to make friends with them because their passion was, here was a group of people who didn't know Jesus at all. And they were just committed to these men, to the, to the natives knowing Jesus. Now, there's a headhunter group and people told them they're dangerous. You can't make, you can't make contact. Don't, don't do it. But he said, no, we've got to. His own son, as they were flowing, uh, flying off, Nate Saint's son, Steve Saint, asked him, Dad, if the, if, the, if the natives try to kill you, will you fire back? Will you shoot back at them? He said, no, we won't shoot back. We know Jesus. They don't. And so they, they fly and they decide, finally, that there's a, there's a small strip of land in the, middle of the, in the middle of the river. They decide that they're going to land there and try and make verbal contact. So they go ahead, they choose the day, they make that day, they land in the middle of the island, and they're about to make contact. They make a last transmission from, from the radio, and they're never heard from again. Militaries go in to find out what happened. 
All they know is that they made a transmission, they landed on the island. They show up and they find the bodies of the missionaries strewn all over the river and strewn all about with spears in their back. And they found all of the missionaries, there's seven of them, they found them dead. Every single one of them dead. It became huge news. So in the time in which this happened, uh, time, uh, it was all over Time Magazine front page news. One of the most iconic pictures is, is a picture of a missionary face down in a river with a spear coming out of his, his back. Now here's what I like though. Is that Jim Elliott, before he went, said, he is no fool if he should choose to give up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. But there's more to this story. There's more to this story. Nate, or Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, who, would, who was the pilot, said, as he looked at the situation, it was very odd. It was an odd, odd situation because, because they landed at precisely the wrong time. Steve Saint has gone back. We'll, we'll talk about in a minute what, what happened with that group of Indians. But he had enough contact with them to, to basically reconstruct what happened. And the reason the missionaries were killed really had nothing to do with who they were, had nothing to do with them being missionaries. They showed up at the wrong time in the right place where a young couple was trying to run off and elope from the tribe and run from the tribe and another person was jealous and they got in the middle of a jealous relationship fight and all of the missionaries were killed. Now, Steve Saint, son of Nate Saint, the pilot, writing about it, who lost his dad when he was a little kid, said when he looked back, when he looked at it, he looked at everything that had to happen, and he decided that it could not have happened except for divine providence, which is a really strange term to use about your father being brutally murdered. But he said... It could not have happened except for it. they landed on that island on just the right day in the middle of just the right tribal fight. Come back to that in a minute. So, Nate Saint's mom's name is Rachel. Rachel Saint. Jim Elliott's wife's name is Elizabeth Elliott. Their husbands get murdered in the middle of the river by the native people. What's the natural response? Hatred? Anger? Desire for justice? Desire for retribution? Desire for punishment? It's all of those things, isn't it? Here's what Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot did. They went, to the, they went to the people. They went back to the island, so to speak. It's, it's an area. The island's in the middle of a river. But they went back across the river and they went back to the tribe. To the same tribe that killed their family. And Nate Saint actually spends part of his formative years growing up amongst the same tribe that murdered his father. Nate Saint, and I'll explain this in a minute, essentially had for a replacement father the man who he believed had, had speared his father. Elizabeth Elliot, Rachel Saint said, well, he is no fool if he should choose to give up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. So Rachel St. Elizabeth Alley and others went back to the tribe. And they, and, and they said, not maybe verbally, but in, their, in, their, in their, their emotional makeup, they said, you may have murdered our husbands, 
but they came and were willing to give your life if only you could know about Jesus. And so Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot went back with other missionaries and they shared the love of Christ with this tribe to the point that the tribe, the whole tribe, became Christ followers. So if you were to survey this unreached tribe, this unreached people group at that time, if you were to survey them, certainly not to a man, but the majority would be Christ followers amongst the tribe. It was the first generation from that tribal group, from that native group, to ever have old people in their tribe ever. Because this was the first time that cannibalism and intertribal fighting did not kill off the older generation. They were the first generation of people to grow old. They were the first generation of people to have grandfathers. They were the first generation of people to see their fathers grow old. Why? Because the love of Christ came into the tribe and they stopped killing. Because the love of Christ transformed them. Why did that happen? It happened because guys like Nate Saint and, and, and Jim Elliott decided as they looked into their future, they looked at what the future had for them, that their that their children could not be their idol or their God, that their wives could not be their idol or their God, that their, even their life could not be their idol or their God, they went in and said, he is no fool if he should choose to give up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. Which, by the way, is just another way to say for them to live was Jesus Christ and to die was gain. We need to decide exactly who we are and what we want to do with Jesus. We don't face a lot of persecution in America it's a fact. We don't face a lot of persecution. And so we think of that as a good thing, but we also don't have a lot of deep, strong faith sometimes in America because we're not facing anything. You need to be aware, though, that this past year was the worst year in history for persecution and martyrdom around the world. People are being killed for following Jesus. It's pretty easy here. But sometimes the ease of following Jesus here makes it all the more dangerous. I want to call you and I out of our idolatry. I want to call you and I to an honest look in the mirror. If you, in this new year, are going to choose to worship something other than Jesus, be honest about it. Be honest about it. Look into the mirror and say, for me to live is my children and to die is not gain. For me to live is my stomach and to die is not gain. For me to live is my job and to die is not gain. For me to live is my girlfriend and to die is not gain. For me to live is an inappropriate focus and codependence upon my wife and to die is not gain. Be honest about it. Be honest about it. It's your own destruction. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. You're speaking to your own destruction. You're speaking to your own ruin. You're speaking and stealing pleasure from yourself. You're stealing joy from yourself. You're stealing peace for yourself. You're stealing everything from yourself. But be honest about it in this year. Because that's my call to me. Because I'm not going to spend another year looking into the mirror and realizing that I, what I worship is not the God of the universe. When the God of the universe created me for him, and he created me for him and promised me that in his presence I would have pleasures and joy evermore. I'm not living for junk this year. And if you want to, go ahead, but at least be honest about it. Look in the mirror, declare your God, and tell him you worship it. My hope, though, is that you will spend each morning of the new year waking up saying, I may not be there yet. I may not be there yet, but Jesus, you are my God, and all the other gods, they can't have me.
And all the other things I got to get rid of, I get rid of. Everything that doesn't contribute to you, I count as rubbish. If only somehow I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. That's Paul too. My prayer is that we will look into the mirrors and we will disavow the false gods to the point that we can all say together, for us to live is Jesus Christ and to die is gain. Pray with me.